Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show for writers about writing, about reading, about stories and about all the business and hard work and love and pain that goes into making stories and making words on pages, which I guess are stories, aren't they? I don't know why I added an extra category there. I think I thought I was going to go somewhere and I felt like I had some speed, like I really feel each time I do that intro I say a bit faster which in my head passes for competence, and so I deliver it. And I think, goodness, I sound like a kind of late 80s shock jock doing something brilliant on the radio, sounding like they really know what they're doing. Feel It makes me feel like a professional. I kind of get a slight buzz off um, the illusion of oral fluency. And uh, and, and I, can't, I, I was unseated at the end of it, and that's all right. It's okay to make mistakes. That's my number one lesson for you. How are you? That's unnecessarily... Uh, neurotic. I've been having a difficult week, to be honest. Um, there is a show today, by the way. It's not going to be just um, me doing a therapy session. Today is a really... I'm, like, I'm always excited, of course. And I've started saying I'm always excited uh, in kind of apology for being excited. I guess because I, I'm, I'm like, naturally, I've always swung towards a neurosis and cynicism. And so it's it's odd and it feels like I need to flag it up that I'm spending a lot of these episodes when I chat to writers going oh my gosh I can't wait to share this with you um that feels like it needs some kind of you know like a footnote of saying by the way I'm not just being a lovey I'm not just being sort of mindlessly boosterish I'm not lying to you I'm genuinely enthusiastic and I'm not easily enthused so you've got to understand <laughs> <laughs> like this isn't just because I don't have standards I'm really excited but I well I'm just so excited I'm so excited um to share this one because it's a great it's a great chat like I I and I'm allowed to say that because it's mainly not me uh talking so today I chatted to VE Schwab uh New York Times best-selling author not that that is the most interesting, but I just like throw that in just to say on this show, we've had people who haven't sold a single copy yet because they're, you know, debut authors and their work isn't out yet. And we have had people who've sold literally millions of copies of their books. And and to me, you know, th that degree of success is not what makes uh, them interesting and we've had great insights from people right at the beginning of their writing journey and fantastic uh, reflections from people who are uh, you know well on the road and have some travel tips for us and all points in between you know that is not the issue <laughs> but it just so happens that um, she's a really amazing and well-known author um Really, really enjoyed talking to her about her Shades of Magic series, talking about her first book, talking about planning, talking about, you know, that, you know, I, I'm, I'm very lucky in that um, authors allow me to ask like the dumb questions like, is this character a bit like you? Which I don't know, like he's often frowned upon as a question because it's implying that the the writer can't do fiction, right? <laughs> that, that, that everything is sort of semi-autobiographical. Uh, but it's interesting to kind of like think, and, and there's some really amazing, actually, the, the distinction between that um, Victoria makes today uh, between aspirational characters and kind of, uh, I guess, 
I, 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 I want to say alter egos. Uh, that, but this idea of like there being sort of different types of those protagonists in stories, and the way that she relates to her characters, um, is really, really interesting. And I think, as well as there being some, and actually, you know what, she also tells her story of how she found her audience is one of the most validating and inspirational. And just healthy stories that I've ever heard. It's just great. So I'm one of the reasons I'm excited today is just because you're. Gonna, I know you're going to listen to it, and you're going to leave listening to this podcast feeling pumped, feeling just better about your writing, feeling reinvigorated. And that's a great because that's how I felt when I finished this conversation with her, right? Uh, and. And now I get to give that gift to you, and I'm re- that's why that's why I'm so excited when I when I do these intros to the to the episodes because I know uh, you know it's, I do a lot of work on the podcast and it can be quite tiring at times, uh, but the reason I throw myself into it with such vigor is because of chats like these and the things I learn from them, and it continues to be a huge source of just it's just making me a better writer which is what it what it's all about right um i have had a pretty difficult week i'm going to get to the episode in a sector where i'm not going to keep you uh endlessly tarrying um but i i just like to be open about these things because a few people have said it helps um i've had a really difficult mental health week this week real big flare-up of anxiety and a bit of depression as well which i don't tend to get anymore um you know that's something that if you you know, if you go into writing and you suffer from mental health issues, it can be difficult because it's kind of like an invisible problem. You just kind of like go away from things. Uh, you don't have colleagues in the same way, so it can be quite an isolating job. You don't get health care or uh, paid sick leave. Um, so it's tricky. It's tricky d- d- doing this because I'm a, a freelancer essentially i was gonna say essentially no literally i'm a free answer right so it, that can be tricky i don't you don't have the same safety nets and if you're somebody who faces these challenges um like i am that manages uh conditions uh which which can come and go you know and which you can go into you know can go into uh can can recede can disappear um it, it can be hard and uh I think I've worn myself out a little bit, but I'd want to say like, and part of that has been doing recording loads and loads of episodes of the podcast. I'm not saying I'm not meaning to turn up and going, ah, oh, just want to say I'm really excited, but you guys need to know my, what I'm doing for you, what I'm so generously doing for you is making me really ill. It's not, it's, it, there's nothing inherently exhausting about what I'm doing. It's just, it's kind of me. And because I've actually recorded quite a few, it means I'm going to get to have a little bit more of a um, a sort of like lighter work schedule now as I go back to my writing. Uh, and I, you know, I stalled slightly on the work in progress, which I mean, is only relative because it's just been going so fantastically well and just been I've just been creaming through it. Um, little bit of a little bit of a slowdown. Uh, as I had some other stuff to go to and then I've come back to it. Um, and so this week I decided I was just going to try writing a short story and I've been having a great time. So I'm kind of back on it and uh, I just want to just wanted to to let you know because a few people have sort of been, been worried because I, I tend to put out tweets <laughs> that don't don't scream 
that this person is particularly well um but just yeah thanks and i love you all dearly and uh, i'm so i'm just so glad that you're gonna get to listen to this episode before you get into it though the final thing is just to say um this show doesn't have sponsors at the moment so uh, the way that I can keep the lights on and keep it running is through your support. Now, the best thing you can do to support me is to pre-order a copy of my my forthcoming novel, The Ice House, which is out on June the 2nd. I've been banging on about it. Uh, if, if just a, just a fraction, just a quarter of the listeners who listen to this in a week... Um, go and pre-order it then it will be a bestseller um not that that inherently matters but it would certainly help out my life and uh yeah well i just it just would be funny wouldn't it um just do it which is the worst the worst sales pitch in the world buy my book it'd be funny go on make me rich it'd be funny it wouldn't make me rich for it to be a bestseller it would just uh be a cool thing that i could say it'd be bragging rights wouldn't it look but um, i just want to say thank you to all of you who've um got in touch with me to say that you've been pre-ordering i'm going to put a link in the show notes uh to mr b's emporium if you get it through there i'm going to sign all the copies they get and if they do over a hundred pre-orders not only will you be helping out a wonderful indie bookstore but um i'll produce a tiny bit of extra material to chuck in with each one but anyone who pre-orders you know you're going to be getting a gorgeous first edition of a book about an old lady who uh, comes out of retirement for one last job about a 400 year old field medic pathologist martial arts battle nun who wants to kill her boss uh there's dungeon crawls and uh weird science and uh, mutations and courtly intrigue and epic stories spanning centuries and all of that is just heaped into there along with romance and psychedelics and uh just kind of loads and loads of stuff that I thought you would find cool and that makes my heart sing and I you know I hope that you if you enjoy this podcast if it brings you value if it's something you like and um, you want to help me keep going then uh, you consider treating yourself to a pre-ordered copy put links in the show notes uh, or you can just go to your local bookstore and say hey please get this in for me I'd love it um final thing is also you can um, click the link to my coffee page ko dash fi.com forward slash tim claire um and thank you to all of you who've been uh, dropping me a few squids um that all goes into my hosting costs uh for the website and for the podcast um just allows me to literally keep the lights on right there is all the ado is out of the way there's going to be no further ado um i am super super pleased excited thrilled and privileged to uh let you finally get your uh, ear holes around uh a conversation between me and new york times best-selling author v schwab enjoy oh thank you so much and how is your how is your puppy i only asked this because last night in my D group 
Yeah. I mentioned that I'd be talking to you this morning and one of my players went, oh my gosh, you've got to ask her about her dog. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the thing is, Riley is eight and a half months old. I've only oh. her for a month and a half. And she was found when she was three or four months old wandering the woods of Transylvania. So we think she's a bird, what's called a Berger de Pyrenees which is not the same as a Great Pyrenees. It's like, it's called, it's a Pyrenean shepherd. And she's basically just a miniature wolfhound. She's a wild, like, just a crazy puppy. I mean, any eight-month-old puppy is a bit off the rocker, but she in particular is just, I love her to death. And I'm very, very glad that I do because she tests me every day. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Oh, my gosh. I used to be really nervous around dogs. I think I grew up. I don't know why I sort of. But my um, but then my wife really loves dogs. So immediately it was like, this is never going to work. But then I started going around and every time I saw a dog, Mm -hmm. I would think, oh, I must tell Lisa would love that dog. (laughs) And it sort of it was like a weird Pavlovian response where I'd see a dog. I'd think about how happy it would make someone I love. Aww. And then I'd feel happy before I felt scared. I love that. And, until I was just going around going, oh, there's a dog. I'm really <laughs> happy. Wait a minute, this training. isn't me. Who am I? That's a brilliant training mechanism. <laughs> yes, I, bit... I grew up around dogs and I'm an only child. And so I genuinely like, I care for animals more than I care for people in 99% of the cases. Hmm. Um, But it's interesting. I worked as a teenager in a dog daycare, like um, a facility with 20 to 30 dogs. And I was fearless around them. And then I was bitten very, very badly. Uh, I was breaking up a fight and I was a teenager and I broke up the dog fight the wrong way. And one of the dogs just turned and sank its teeth into my leg. And, um, And for about a year and a half afterwards, I... I was extremely skittish around. And it was one of those things where having grown up fearless of them, it was the first time I really got to fathom a little bit what it's like for people who aren't comfortable around dogs. Because I I felt like I just reset all of my fear mechanisms. And it it took a couple years for me to get really comfortable around dogs again. Uh, But honestly... I, I love them to death. I, I much prefer animals. And Riley, for all of her wildness, doesn't have a mean bone in her body. She's just the sweetest, most loving dog who just happens to be a whirling dervish. She's like a whirlwind of teeth at any time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Can I ask you, uh, one thing I wanted to start off with was, can you, because that's like a really lovely story you were telling about I guess kind of like the move from kind of like innocence to kind of like coming up against the real world to kind of like a more to like getting back to the original state which is kind of like a classic kind of like journey of a protagonist I've had a hero's journey (laughs) yeah yeah I was just wondering can you remember what's the first story you can remember telling oh um well, it's, you know, it's really interesting. When you're an only child, you tell yourself quite a lot of stories. <laughs> so I grew up uh, in a slight fictional world of my own making. I, I very vividly remember going, I lived in California at the time, and going up to Lake Tahoe, which is where I had family, and I would hike, and I would constantly be looking for doorways to other worlds. Anytime I saw cracks in stone, anytime I saw anything that remotely looked like a keyhole, I would tell myself these 
stories about what was on the other side. And um, and then I didn't actually start writing really until I was in my teens. And even then, I, I didn't start writing novels. There's all these authors who, especially if they started around when I started, dove into fan fiction or dove into novels. But I didn't really. I I was very interested in short fiction and in poetry. And I ended up finding one of the first stories I ever told. And it's it's funny to me because it is so quintessentially prescient. It's very predictive of the kind of writer I would be. <laughs> I was fascinated by archetypes. I was fascinated by the concepts of good and evil and hierarchies. And I must have been 13 or 14 um, when I wrote down a story about two brothers, the angel of life and the angel of death, and how the angel of death was very resentful because his job was just as important as the angel of life. But everyone liked the angel of life because his job was quite nice and how the angel of death in a moment of brotherly rivalry and despair slaughtered the angel of life thinking, well, now there'll be no one to compare me with and everyone will like me. And then everyone in the world died and he was alone. <laughs> and, and, and that's genuinely the first short story I ever finished. That sounds, see, that's, that sounds, that sounds awesome. Cause a lot of, authors when i talk to them they i you know i think understandably when they talk about stuff they wrote as a teenager they're like they distance themselves from it a little oh, bit no. and they go oh gosh it's terribly embarrassing and i always there's a, i always get a slight pang for the teenage writer they were that yeah. they're kind of throwing that version of them under the bus so i think it's really nice that you've written this story and you look back at it and go <laughs> yeah, I kind of like a lot of the ideas I'm working with there. I mean, maybe, it sounds cool. Maybe it's just my philosophy in general as a writer, but I'm 16, 17 novels in now, and I think that the only way to not go mad and not the only way to really appreciate the breadth of your work is to look at each and every book, each and every story you tell as a time capsule of the creator that you were at the time you were writing it. Because I can look back at my debut novel, which came out when I was 23, 24, and is now being released again next month. And um, and it would be very easy. I get asked a lot now, oh, do you wish you could change it? Would you go back and change it? Well, like from a craft perspective, of course, I've grown, hopefully, over the 16 books between that novel and the one I'm writing now. But at the same time, no, because when I wrote that book, which is called The Near Witch, it was who I was and what I was capable of and the story I wanted to tell at that time. As a 21, 22-year-old graduating college and feeling lost and feeling very torn between my past and my future. And so I think I just go back and I look at the earlier work I did with the same lens of, well... Of course, it's not who I am now. It's not what I'm capable of now. And if I, if it were, then I wouldn't be capable of what I am now. And I, these are building blocks. And so I think I, I'm, I look back at the things I've already done, not as perfect, not as grand, but as formative in a very important way. Can you talk a little bit about um, that book, just because it is coming out again, and also for anyone who hasn't uh ready because it'd be really nice to it would be really nice to just touch on that a little bit and talk about because that's a lovely way of looking 
at your uh, at your own work i think but it'd be really nice just i just want to make sure everyone who's listening is kind of like on the bus before we yeah deep dive into it's a self-preserving way of looking at your own work let me put it that way it's a sanity preserver but yeah so and i doubt anyone has read it it came out to almost no fanfare it sold very few copies and it went away very quickly and uh, it's called the near witch and it's essentially a fairy tale not a fairy tale retelling but a fairy tale about a village fictional village in northern england called Near, where a stranger appears one night, and the following night, all of the children of the village begin to disappear one by one. And it's about the assumption that the stranger did it. And and that's really all I can say about it. It's it's short, and it's strange, and dark, and a bit whimsical, and I'm sure compared to the Shades of Magic series, or Vicious and Vengeful, it, it might seem a little simplistic, but it was very important to me. And I, I grew up, I'm a, I'm a half Z, I'm half American, half, half British. And I grew up strangely in the South, in the United States. And I was always an outsider. I'm, I moved from California to Tennessee when I was three, moved back to California when I was eight, moved back to Tennessee when I was 13 at these very formative ages. And I was always on the outs. And I was always experiencing that strange phenomenon that happens where small towns kind of exist as microcosms unto themselves and are very distrustful of things from the outside. And so from a very early age, I became fascinated with the idea of insider versus outsider culture. And it's something, a theme that I've gone on to explore in every single one of my stories, whether inadvertently or purposefully, this idea of what it means to be an outsider. Because, of course, you can be physically an outsider as the stranger in The Near Witches, or you can be emotionally an outsider as the main character Lexi is, somebody who is born in a place and yet still feels othered in some way. And I guess the other thing about outsider characters, whether they are, whether the community or the places they're in recognize them or even notice them as outsiders you know whether their their outsider status is something that is att- the attention of everyone or whether yeah. they're secretly or so slightly more kind of like a submarine kind of like going around that they're also tend to be that outsider status makes them very keen observers I guess yeah. like you were talking about growing up that you were constantly slightly weirded out by the world and looking for ways to escape into an adjacent reality it forces you to become a social mimic in a way to get by and so you do become a keen observer of the world around you but you also become a keen observer of the people in that world and and so it's it's something that i think has formed me as a writer more than anything else is the desire to observe but also the desire to understand what makes an insider an insider you know, and it's slightly a performative role to be an outsider trying to feel or act like an insider. But it's also something from a craft perspective. I know we'll talk about craft later, but I just want to say from a writing perspective, I get asked a lot about world building. And one of the things that I do is I make sure that I remember that each and every 
character that I write is seeing the world through a very specific lens. So if you're writing an insider, obviously the way they see and engage with their world is very different from if you're writing somebody who's stepping into that world for the first time. And I think it's very important to remember that whether you're right, unless you're writing like a true omniscience perspective, um, if you're writing, you're writing from a perspective. And that means that you have the opportunity to write a story um, and hone it through a very specific pair of eyes. Can you give an example of that from, you know, a character in oh yeah in your work? Because that'd be re- it'd be really it's a it's a great it's a great point, and I I, I wondered how you've yeah. specifically uh, applied that. The easiest one for me to do is uh, my Shades of Magic series, A Darker Shade of Magic. Kel Maresh is one of the main characters, yeah, yeah. and he has spent his entire life in Red London. Now he feels like an outsider, but he also interacts with his city and his world with the comfort of somebody who has known it all their life, for whom everything about that world is normal, from the linguistic elements uh, to magic, to being a royal, to being things. And yes, he engages with his world in a different way than a commoner would in that world, but he understands it. He understands the intricacies. And because of that, he doesn't notice things in the same way. Now, in The Darker Shade of Magic, though, Delilah Bard enters Red London for the very first time as a person who has never seen this world, for whom magic is brand new, for whom the language is strange, for whom the culture is unknown. And so the way the things that she notices and the ways that she engages with the city are completely different from the way that Kel does. So it gives us an opportunity as the reader not only to follow Lila as a classic kind of portal character who the reader can see themselves in because she's new and they're new. But also it gives us the opportunity to learn more about Red London in a kind of cheeky way because we learn about one facet of it from Kel's perspective and we learn about completely different facets of it from Lila's perspective. Yeah, because I guess the the classic, the, the, the kind of like way it was done in uh, like tend science fiction stories tended to be that there would either be you either have the like kind of Buck Rogers character who's shot into the future and yeah. is a complete kind of like uh, n- uh, n- naive character doesn't know anything about it or there's I suppose the like kind of like sexist trope was the sort of professor's daughter who he gets yeah. to kind of like go well here's how my invention works because of course you wouldn't understand this this is kind of men's stuff um but it, and and different characters can be outsiders in different scenarios right like that they can have yeah. you, we can see them move through uh places where they're very at home and well, then suddenly also- put them in situations where you know a character who's great at kind of moving through kind of th- the thieves guild yeah. uh might be completely out of place at a at a masked ball. Um, well, this is the great irony of that dynamic in Shades of Magic is Kel, who has spent his entire life in Red London, feels completely at odds with his home and feels like does not adapt well. This is a character who can literally move between alternate worlds and hmm. he doesn't really adapt to any of them. Whereas Lila is dropped into a brand new world for whom everything is new and within a matter of weeks is a pirate captain. <laughs> like uh-huh. she she adapts, she is starts, she immediately she hits the ground running in a way that I think I I mean I did purposefully to kind of shake up the dynamic of 
the new world. But I think it's really important to remember that just because a character is physically from a place doesn't mean that they're incredibly skilled at adapting to it. And of course, Lila finds places where she does feel less comfortable in the world. She finds roles that she feels less comfortable playing like that ball, um, like the conventional female roles in that first book. But I think it's really important to remember that you don't have to bind one character to one aspect in that way, that your outsider isn't only an outsider. Your outsider has ways that they're going to become an insider. And every person has things that feel comfortable for them, roles that they they revert to, to feel safe. And for Lila, that's a thief. That's somebody who slips through a world only being noticed when they want to be noticed. Does... Uh, this is going to this perhaps is going to uh, do say if this is a bit of a stretch or, or a reach or I'm kind of imposing some kind of interpretation on it. But I'm just drawing some lines from you describing yourself as a kind of halvesy and kind of living between two uh, cultures, two countries and this character and, and kind of going around and having the sense of being an outsider and this character who can move between parallel worlds do you in those two characters were you kind of exploring either consciously or unconsciously your own experiences and perhaps what are ways that you would like to be I was going to say Lila Bard is an aspirational character in terms of the ease which with which she moves but Kel is definitely a closer to myself. Now, here's the thing. There's a lot of authors who will talk about an avatar, a character within the world whom they represent. And I don't feel that way. In fact, I feel the exact opposite. I feel like when I'm writing characters in my books, I've broken off a facet of my personality and grown a character from it. So I am a little, each character is a little bit of me, but I am not now any one of the characters, if that makes sense. So Kel's, feeling like an other, feeling like an outsider, that is an aspect of my personality. And um, Rise, the prince in the series, his need to perform, his need to adapt to fit his environment is a different aspect of my personality. And, And so each character in the series, from the heroes through the villains and everyone in between, I feel like I have a handhold on them. I feel like I've given them something of myself and then extrapolated it into a new form so that so that none of them represents me entirely, but each of them has a sliver of my personality, weakness, strength, flaws, fears, etc. that have they've grown from. Do you, so it's almost the way you describe it, it's almost like they've got to have every character that you're writing, you've got to have some point of empathy to exactly. give them life. But beyond exactly. that, they can go off and be their own person. That's very well. That's much better put. No, sorry. <laughs> I, was I wasn't meaning to restate what you're saying. No, no, I was no. just making sure I understood. I was very much trying to find the words for that. Yes. I feel like if a character doesn't have some piece of me, I can't write them. And I don't mean that in the like, I was once on a panel with some short story authors who basically declared that they only wrote autobiographical characters. That, And I find that to be quite masturbatory quite self-satisfying um i don't mean it like that i don't want to be writing myself over and over and over again but i do use characters as a way to examine some thought some fear some piece of my identity and i do that so that i feel like 
I do, as you say, have a point of empathy, have an entry point into a character. So I can write a character who is completely different from me, but there has to be a seed somewhere. So Marcella in Vengeful, which is my um, supervillain series, Marcella is in many ways the exact opposite of me. She's a reactionary character that I wrote because Delilah Bard is very much like me. And I didn't want to only write one kind of female lead. I didn't want to show female strength as only taking one form. And especially Lila has a very um, defeminized identity. And so I didn't want to be drawing a corollary between strength and masculinity. And so I tried to write Marcella. And Marcella is somebody who embodies every aspect of her femininity, every aspect of her power in a very different way that I have a very hard time relating to. But the seed of Marcella is a desire to be seen and a frustration with being discounted. And that's something that I know know very, very well within the science fiction and fantasy community as, as a woman. And so there was an aspect of Marcella's character that I was able to start with that I knew. And then it became like, I knew the skeleton. I just put different makeup on it. I want to ask, cause it's that sort of brings me actually really neatly on to my next question, which was going to be, so with that point of empathy, and I've heard you talk about villains before and just been, I don't want to set you up too much, but like I've been really enraptured hearing the stuff you've been talking oh, about. Felt like I've learned so much from you. So <laughs> we'll just move that aside for a second. And feel, please feel free to kind of... Uh, but um, I'd be really interested to how you deal with that and how, you know, you think writers can deal with that. But when it comes to somebody who's doing things that, like you say, uh, unlike you, or things that are really antithetical to your values in some way or things that you go well I would you know because it's clearly not you if someone's doing something something horrible I'm assuming that you don't go around murdering people or whatever no 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 no. (laughs) Um, so so where does the empathy work uh there how do you create a good uh villain or antagonist because the, the lesson that I learned while writing Vicious is, is it's not what somebody does, it's why they do it. And the most important thing when it comes to developing empathy is making sure that a character acts from reasons. A character doesn't just, you know, rub their hands together and wahaha, unless that character's entire drive is anarchy, a la the Joker in Batman. And even still, the Joker is designed to be everything that Bruce Wayne fears. And so unless you're devising something within a dynamic like that, I think it is imperative that your antagonists, just like your protagonists, have some code. And that doesn't have to be a moral code, but it has to be a mantra. It has to be something that guides them, some principles. And sometimes that means that a villain like Eli Ever in the Vicious series honestly feels like they are the protagonists, like they're they're un- misunderstood, like they are operating from a place of absolute conviction. I think conviction is key. I think we don't have to understand what they do. We don't have to like what they do. But if we can see them as people who are operating from a place of complex self-interest, then we understand them as human. I think so often villains don't work because they're not given the same moral complexity as heroes. They're reduced to something like, I want power. And while I want power is a really interesting thing to explore, 
It's not nearly as interesting as I want revenge. And the reason for that is that revenge is personal. And I think that the more personal you can make the stakes in a story for both the hero and the villain, the more the easier time it is for readers to wrap their heads around it. Because I feel like so often the reason that readers don't connect with the characters because they don't understand what they're why they're doing what they're doing. They just they don't grasp them as people. And I think reminding yourself that everyone exists with a motive, everyone exists for a reason, everything they do is done for a reason. It's just about understanding that reason. It's about making sure that you convey that reason to the reader. And that's why people like Victor and not Eli in the series, especially in the first book, is because Eli is operating on a grand moral imperative. And that's a very big motive. And Victor is operating on a very small motive and not small in terms of it being inconsequential, but small as it being specific. And I think so often, especially fantasy writers, we, we think we need to make things bigger to make them more important. When the truth is that so often the things which guide us, the things which guide our life are intensely specific. I was going to, it's quite a common thing in now you're saying that I'm looking back and seeing how many in the stories that I love um the villain has basically like is the one with the big philosophy that's guiding them and the protagonist is more of a pragmatist a strategist they're like life's a bit more complicated than that I'm gonna do my best um and often it's that big philosophy that the quote-unquote villain or antagonist if we want to be sort of slightly less mean to them about it um that it that they their motives are so huge that they almost don't see the kind of people that they're having to tread on to get to that kind of like gold ring also it's why often historically classically we don't connect with the villain. And so my goal in most of my books is that oftentimes I make the antagonist the the lead, the protagonist. And so in order to do that, I have to give them the same specificity of purpose that's usually given to the hero. Um, And I think it also helps to remember that when we're reading, we want to see ourselves in some way. And I think like something like world domination is a very hard goal for the, for the, a normal person to wrap their head around, right? But we've all been slighted by someone. We've all wanted to prove somebody wrong. And so I think making the motivation something that your reader can connect with and process through their own lens makes a story much more powerful, but also makes the reader have a lot more fun rooting for a bad guy. Because, like, the thing about Marcella, the lead in Vengeful, is that she is the physical embodiment of female anger of the anger towards the ways in which women are continually and systematically diminished on both macro and microaggression levels. And I think that a lot of my readers really love getting to see a woman snap back, getting to see a woman do the things which they have always wanted to do in those moments of microaggressions. And Marcella obviously does them on a, ridiculous scale you know she turns a man to dust for not letting her finish her thought you know she does not like being walked over in this way and she has just reached her end but I think that there's a little bit of joy that we as readers take 
from getting to see somebody act the way we want to act in situations. And it's a lot easier to convey that when it's personal than when it's grand. I, I was just given the context of that the sentence, I was just making sure you'd absolutely finished before I, I went in. I was like, oh, don't be the douchebag, Tim. Don't be the douchebag. I... It's very it's very difficult doing this because I'm very aware that I like I doing this this podcast I often um embody a lot of those tropes just by being the guy at the end of the reading who says <laughs> it's not really a question it's more of a comment um oh, and I'm I'm doing my best to learn so I apologize um well, it's kind of the nature of your of your job here you are the frame you are the one who gets the first and last word Thank, uh, which I've which I've engineered myself, um, but I it, I think that's really really cool, and it strikes me that often in uh, in villains in general, but also in, in your books, they are I don't, wish fulfillment seems like it's slightly too twee, but that they're they're poking, they're exposing some flaw in the social contract that they're holding something up something that isn't working for people and saying look the emperor has no clothes or they're explode and they're saying like this they, they've often they've often got a point right yeah. like at some level well i have to tell you just from a craft level so vicious originally came out i guess five and a half years ago and i watched i have always like i'm a bit morbid right i'm a bit macabre and i'm a, i love I like violence in context, but I'm somebody who definitely grew up on action films, who really likes seeing a good fight sequence, who really likes seeing a hero get his ass kicked. Hmm. Um, I don't know what it is, but like, I just, you know, I grew up with it. I think I grew up and I really disliked the squeaky clean, the early Bonds and Supermans and characters who never showed their scuffs. You know, and I and then I wrote Vicious. And when I wrote Vicious, which for those who don't know, is a book about two uh, college students who discover the key to superpowers are near death experiences. And they set out to manufacture their own abilities by navigating their own suicides and resurrections. And shocker, it goes horribly wrong. And when I was writing it, I was writing it as an escape from publishing. And so I was faced with the question after a kind of a rocky first few years, if nobody else was going to read this, if there was no place on the bookshelf for it, what do I want to read right now? And maybe it's just a reflection of where I was, what I was going through, but I wanted to read something that had a bit of, um, not grimdark, that's become a very different thing, but a little bit of brutality. And, and especially in relating to comic book culture and superhero, supervillain culture. And I started writing it and, and I watched when, eventually it got published and readers started reading it and they started reacting to Victor and Victor Vale has the ability to mediate people's pain thresholds, which is a, a very sadistic power. It's a power that a hero could use for good because he could turn people's pain down. Victor doesn't use hmm. it for good. Victor uses it to achieve his ends. And it's quite a sadistic ability, and I had quite a lot of fun writing it. And then I watched readers, and they would go through this process while reading it, because you could see their, like, status updates. About 50 pages into the book, they would say, wow, Victor is an asshole. I do not like this guy. He is bad. And about halfway through the book, they'd be like, okay, wait. Like, Victor is definitely bad, and he's doing really bad things, and I know I shouldn't root for him. 
but I'm, I kind of, I kind of like him. And then about three quarters of the way through the book, people are like, okay, wait, I'm getting really morally confused right now because Victor is doing really awful things and I like it. And then by the end of the book, people were rooting for Victor a hundred percent. And I would watch this with almost every reader that they would go through a kind of psychological reevaluation of their own morals while watching Victor while reading him. And I became fascinated with the idea that readers like to watch somebody cause another person pain because if they feel it's merited, they like to give in a little bit to that as a consumer because it's almost like the embodiment of reading as a safe outlet. Like we've all wanted to take a modicum of revenge against somebody to watch somebody just like, be punished in some way, not to get a little too BDSM about it, but like we are fascinated with the idea of a safe environment with which to see punishment. And reading is uh, the ultimate safe environment. Reading is the ultimate moment where we get to hand the reins over to someone else and simply experience something without repercussion. And so I tested this theory. I was like, this is a weird theory. And I'm pretty sure it's not going to be like societally acceptable to be like, people like to read about punishment. So I'm going to write two very sadistic characters into the Shades of Magic series. And I'm going to just, they have a small part. They're Athos and Astrid Dane. And I'm going to see what happens because I'm not arguing that they're protagonists. I'm not even arguing that they're antagonists. They are straight up villains. And I want to see how readers feel about a little bit more sadism. I want to test this. And shocker, readers loved Athos and Astrid Dane. And I started you know, from a psychological perspective, started examining this, like, okay, wait, like, it was one thing when the sadist was my protagonist operating with a kind of a moral high ground here, or at least an ethical point, because he really only, for the most part, hurts bad people. Now I've given you a villain, and they're still being sadistic, and readers still like it. And so I've been pushing it a little bit more with each and every book, obviously, within the confines of the narrative, but I have started to truly believe, and that's Marcella is a bit the culmination of that adventure that we as readers really love an outlet that it's fun to go on a hero's journey. It's fun to see people save the day or whatever. But in with that, we also really want to see an outlet for our own frustrations. That's so like, I, I have to say, while you've been saying that my hand has variously moved from my mouth to my head back covering my <laughs> mouth again I'm really shocked here like and although strangely nothing you're saying seems to me unbelievable I'm just like gosh I think you might be right also because I had that experience reading vicious <laughs> from the uh, as an end user of it and now yeah. I feel incredibly called out um what was you said can I just take you back to something you sure. said you said you wrote vicious you said as an escape from the publishing yeah. industry can i just ask you what you meant by that of course um i started very young my first book sold when i was 22 so i just graduated university and it was like being thrown into an ice bath <laughs> um you go from writing uh, and for many people especially when they're starting writing is an escape writing is uh, something we do that is cathartic, that is for a kind of a measure of self-care. You go from writing in a dark cave where only you can see what you're doing to being thrown into a glass sphere 
where everyone has an opinion, everyone has um, an investment in it, your everything is being done on deadline. And um, what happens to many debut authors is if they're under contract for more than one book, they lose the love. Suddenly writing is a job and it comes with a lot of pressure and expectation and you start to forget how it was your help, how it was your safe space, how it was your catharsis, because all of a sudden it has all of this weight to it. And so when you add this very natural, I watch almost every debut author go through this process. It's called the sophomore slump when they're working on their first book under contract, which is that second book. On top of that, I wasn't having a very good publishing experience. I had a pretty rough relationship with my first publisher from full page, like full page one rewrites of my first novel to just really struggling to get them to invest and believe in me. I didn't feel supported very much. And I was starting to really wonder if I had made a mistake and, uh, and writing for so long had been so important to me from a mental health perspective that I just wanted to find that joy again. I wanted to find that love. And so I began having a tiny book affair. I began having a tiny story affair on the side with a book that was just designed to get out everything I was feeling. And in that way, it was my catharsis. It was my outlet, all of my frustrations, everything. And I just thought, oh, uh, screw it. Like, uh, I've always been a bit morbid and I want to write. I want to read a book about supervillains. I want to read a book. I specifically set myself a creative challenge. I want to read a book that has no heroes in it and still see if I can root for somebody. And so that's really where the challenge of vicious was born. And I worked on it for three years without telling anybody because I never really thought it would be published. It didn't seem publishable, especially at the time. And honestly, when it went out on submission to publishers, I, I was told the same thing. I was warned the same thing over and over again. You can have comic books and you can have movies. But no one's going to read a comic book in novel form. Like, this doesn't make sense. Like, you're writing a comic book, but it has no pictures. And I didn't care. I just wanted, because I didn't care if it didn't get published, because the only reason I ever told my agent about it was because I had finished writing it. And by the time I had finished writing it, it had done what I needed it to do for me, which was rekindle my love of writing and also begin to reinforce a new idea for me, which doesn't sound like... um a grand idea in retrospect, but at the time it was the idea that I wasn't going to write anything unless I wanted to read it. And unless I didn't care if anybody else ever wrote, read it. And that became my new rule from there on. And it's fun to have that rule from the start, but when you're young and you're trying to break into publishing, you look around a lot and ask yourself, what do other people want? And so I had written vicious and I had never intended anyone to read it. And then my agent read it and she was like, this is very weird. I'm not sure if it will sell, but we can try. And I was like, if you think somebody else might like to read it. And then we we sold it to Tor, Tor Books. And my my editor was like, this is very weird, but I really believe in you. And so we're going to try with this book. But even if this book doesn't really do anything, like we're going to have fun and you're going to write another book. And so I nobody had any expectations that Vicious was going to actually do anything because it was so strange. But I hadn't written it to do anything. And then what happened was it came out and all of the fun and the strange borderline sadistic glee that I had writing that book, the readers had reading it. It was like they could feel my excitement and my joy 
and my creative energy on every page of that book. And the reader reaction, it, it was very cult, like it moved very slowly through the book community, but it grew at this very steady pace. It sold the exact same number of copies every period for its four years before mm-hmm. Vengeful happened. And it just kind of grew and grew and everyone who read it and loved it loved it with the ferocity that I had loved it while writing it. And it became the most reinforcing experience of my entire book career. I was going to say, I think that is one of the most like validating yeah. writing <laughs> stories that I've ever, ever heard. Like, thank you for sharing it because I feel so like, I just want to like punch the air for you. I'm like, that's awesome because that took... I know, like, on one level, you were, you're framing it as, like, oh, actually, I was doing something sort of entirely sort of selfishly for me. I was just doing this just for myself. But on the other hand, to basically, when you've got that little taste of approval from the publishing world, when people yeah. have sort of said, oh, we can't kind of like what you, you do. Uh, I'm not sure about it, so I'm going to make yeah. you change this. And I feel <laughs> kind of, like, am, I, ambivalent about it. But I will put you out if you continue to kind of, like, meet our standards. To kind of go away and go, I'm going to yeah. write this because there is a... I remember the person I was mm-hmm. before I, you know, before I got bitten, before yeah. I had this, like bad experience and I want to get back to that joy and also just personally you know having finished my second book and working on my third now you, everything you're saying has been my experience I mean my publishers have been really super great but like yeah. that feeling of suddenly being exposed yeah and, and writing as a as a with the idea of who an author is like yeah. almost role-playing the <laughs> capital A author rather than being a kind of chancer Right. Which is what you went back to being basically just kind of like going, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm having fun. So the interesting thing is, so Vicious is my fifth, fourth book uh, out of, like I say, 16. And the rule is the thing is, yes, it was so important on so many levels for every reason you said. And on top of that all, I set a rule from that day on that I would apply that uh, same framework to every book that I wrote after that, that I would make sure that I would be the first and primary audience. And so a really interesting thing happened. I write now for children, teens, and adults. And every one of my books, every one of my series is very different, like Vicious and A Darker Shade of Magic. Those two series are very different. And yet people will notice when they're reading, if I, for my readers who read across my work and I have readers who will read everything from the middle grades which are ghost hunting books up through vicious and vengeful they have commented that there is a thread that runs through them that they can't put their finger on but that they all feel like my books and the reason for that is I have required them to be designed for a version of me So when I'm writing my middle grade books now, I ask myself, what did I want to read at age 10? And I write the book specifically as if I'm writing it only for 10 year old me. I make it as strange and as morbid and as weird and funny and scary as I wanted it to be at at 10 years old. And so it's not going to be for everyone, but it's going to be for this very specific version of me. And I thought that the more I wrote to specific versions of myself, to 10-year-old me, to 18-year-old me, to 30-year-old me, that my audience would narrow, that it would become that as I made my writing more specific, 
the readership would become more specific. And the exact opposite happened. The more I wrote with that eye to a specific audience and that audience of one being me, the more that passion and energy that I felt while writing for myself came through in the work and the larger the the books became and the better received they became. So it has been the most validating process. And yes, of course, luck plays a role. Publishing plays a role. So many things play roles in this. But I am convinced that a large reason that my books have become more and more successful is because in paradoxically in writing for myself, I have found that there are a huge number of people out there who wanted that version of me. Do you enjoy writing? It's going to sound like maybe a stupid question, but I no, just no, did something. Not a I, stupid I, question. I feel like anyone who follows me online would think that I don't. This you is know, why, because I, I I follow you on Twitter, and you're very honest yeah. about the different phrase, phases of your writing process. You're kind of like I think it's one of the things that makes you uh, such a great person if you're a writer to follow on Twitter because okay. you don't you're not like trying to sell us a package of goods about the writing lifestyle. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit. I. There are times when I like writing. I'm definitely one of those authors who enjoys having written. I was I was just talking with um, Chuck Wendig and John Scalzi about this last night on Twitter, actually, because we all have slightly different philosophies. But I agree with Chuck in that for me, because I'm type A and because I'm intensely neurotic and because I'm my own worst enemy as well as my first audience, writing has gotten harder for me the more books that I write. I get in my way a lot more. I second guess a lot more. The thing is, you can learn more and more and more and more about writing, and it won't stop the fact that your first draft has to be shitty. And so I struggle a lot more with the first draft part of writing and a lot less with the revision part of writing now. I know how to revise. But 17 books in, I really have a hard time putting away self-criticism when I'm drafting, because it feels like 17 books in, I should be able to write a first draft that isn't so full of shit. Um, and yet, the whole nature of writing a first draft is that you have to write something flawed in order to have something to fix. I struggle so much with that. And in addition to struggling with the fact that experience doesn't somehow buy me a get out of jail card with the first draft, I also, to be very honest, and this isn't something that everyone struggles with. This is the thing that John and I disagreed on, but it's very personally, for me, the hard part. I struggle from a near paralyzing fear that readers who have followed me this far will be disappointed by the next book, whatever it is. I live in fear of the phrase, the last one was better. Yeah, and, um, so I don't yeah. even have anything like the following you you do. And I feel yeah. exactly the same thing. The The thing that gave me writer's block after the honors came out was and i never expected it was the good reviews was yeah. pe was people saying oh wow I, this is i didn't know i w wanted this i had a lovely time in this world and i can't wait to see what he does next and i was like you're not gonna like it <laughs> it's very scary and yes what an like what a, what a privilege right it's a privilege to have that problem but it doesn't stop the fact that like regardless of how successful you are or how new you are, or how many books you have, um, you have to put something of yourself into each one. And you, you have to be willing to take risks, knowing that those risks 
might mean that a section of your readership is dissatisfied. And I think it's one of the reasons that I have tried to make each and every one of my series so different is so to try and alleviate some of that pressure. Like there are readers for whom they love my books three, five, seven, and eight more than they love the other books. And that has to be okay. I think I do it on purpose so as to make it all right for myself to take challenges and to take risks, knowing that not every one of my books has to be for every one of my readers. And it's still very, very, very scary because I'm still convinced, like, I'm writing a book right now that is cataclysmically different from everything I've ever written. And I'm excited about it, but I get in my way every single day because I keep thinking, why are you throwing away a readership? Why are you throwing away your Shades of Magic readers who are so happy to have your fantasy or your villains readers who are so happy to have your action for something that is neither really fantasy nor action? Are You're such a fool. Why are you not just writing what you know your readers want? And at the end of the day, the answer is I'll write that too. But I have to be excited because I am the first reader and because I have to sit with my books for so much longer and in such a an empty space before readers ever get to them. I have to love them 10 times as much because I have to work on them 10 times as hard. And for that, it means I have to, in order to feel creatively fulfilled, push myself and challenge myself. But I'm not going to lie. The more books I write and the more success I have, the more paralyzing it is, that fear. Yeah, I, I, it's why I want to be a little bit careful about saying how much I like love your work and love your stories because I feel like I'm just adding a kind of like another kind of voice in your head. Not that I would be um, weighed against your entire readership, but... No, I, every I, voice does weigh though. That's the thing, right? Every single voice weighs. And I had that problem, interestingly, maybe I'll get a nerd to it a little bit more. I'll hit a certain number of books, a certain number of series, because I definitely had that problem with Vengeful, the second book in the Vicious series. There's a five-year gap between the release of Vicious and the release of Vengeful. And the reason is, first of all, because Vicious was my very first adult novel. Nobody thought it was going to sell well, and so it seemed kind of foolish to sign up a sequel before we saw how it did. And I'm a business-minded person. That was fine with me. And then about three, but I always intended a sequel. And then about three years in, publishers finally like, all right, Victoria, like we know you've got the Shades of Magic series, but like once you finish the Shades of Magic series, we'll let you do the sequel. And the readership for Vicious was so vocally split between people who were very excited and people who thought I was making a horrible mistake because Vicious was a standalone and I was going to ruin it by writing a second book. That sounds horrendous to, to yeah. be environment to how just, much pressure when you go into the blank page. Yeah. And on top of that, so really it was thirds, right? A third were very excited because they wanted more of the characters that they loved. A third were vehemently against it because they wanted to protect this thing that they loved. And a third said to me very vocally, well, I hope it leaves, it lives up to vicious. <laughs> and so the process, this is very sad, and I'm sorry to admit this, the process of writing Vengeful was as awful as the process of writing Vicious was beautiful because I didn't have any of the safety of that silent space. And, and I, and in some ways, you know what, in some ways it forced me to write a better book. In some ways, all of that negativity and all of that fear and all of that pressure pushed me 
in ways that I never would have felt pushed without it. And and it is the thing that I tell myself when I start to let the pressure and those negative voices get to me is that, you know what? Yes, it's terrible. But at the same time, that pressure is what keeps me always working to make the next book better than the last one. It's almost like because also you've got a group of people who have read your book and kind of know your characters or have conceptions about your characters as developed as <laughs> yours are right so the, the great fear is what if I end up writing a kind of fan fiction of my own work that oh, doesn't yeah. feel like it has that you know what you were talking about at the beginning oh, God, that I'm spark of life I love that you said that because the first version of Vengeful was essentially that. I wrote a book that I thought was what readers wanted and I wrote it wrong. And so I ended up having to scrap a hundred thousand words and go back to page one and write the version of Vengeful that is on shelves. And I did it in less than three months. That's so, I don't want, I don't want to sound like I'm being obsequious, but like all the stuff you've been talking about, today it just it feels so courageous to me I just feel <laughs> I want to say that to you I'm almost oh, like you. I'm almost tearing up a little bit because I feel yeah, like what you talk about and what you share is so helpful to everyone and I think well, it's so honest good. and and it seems to me that what you're that maybe this process of like uh success and then letting go of that and doing something for yourself that you first had with Vicious rather than being a sort of one-off epiphany where you kind of cast off the the shackles is 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 more like something that you manage rather than solved you go through periods of caring less and then also having these you know having these readers who you love who you're very appreciative towards who you want to give a good time to who you want no, to enjoy it um and so it seems to me that there's like a that it's more like a, just a kind of process of letting go of that and going back into finding your joy and then becoming slightly kind of clinging on to things that seem to be working and then taking the the step off the into the sort of I darkness mean, again you do your best here's the thing you do your best and there will always be somebody who hates it and the thing you just have to accept that like i'm so grateful to have the size readership that i do but it means that invariably somebody hates something that i've written a good number of people hate things that I've written or don't feel connected with. It's very rare that I get the like viscerally angry people, but, or just like, they don't, they don't get it. It's, and this is the thing. This is the one thing that has saved me psychologically is the larger my readership has gotten, the more emails I get from somebody who says, this is exactly the book that I needed. I feel seen. Right. And so when, when I started to realize that writing with that specificity that I talked about earlier meant that I was writing for a version of myself, but invariably I was writing for somebody else who needed it, it means that I'm able to let go of the readers for whom one of my books is not what they need, because they'll find a book out there that is what they need. I'm writing for the people for whom my book, whatever that book is, whether it's depictions of anxiety in this savage song or whether it's you know um delilah bard and her fearlessness in in gathering of shadows or whether it's marcella riggins and vengeful or whether it's cassie blake in city of ghosts i am writing for the person who will read the book and say 
this is the book I needed. And when I get those messages, it really does make it easier to let go of the people who said this book wasn't for me. Because then it's a lot easier because it's like, that's all right. You'll find the book that's for you. I can't write a book that's for everyone. When you try to write a book that's for everyone, you end up disappointing everyone because <laughs> you end up writing a book that's just for nobody. Yeah. And I would rather write a book that's for somebody. I definitely, there's like a neurotic voice in my head a lot of the time that, especially because, you know, I do stuff on stage as well. That's very much like, yeah. please, please come back. I'll, I'll stay, say the opposite if you stay. And, and of course, he who so chases two rabbits catches neither. I say that so often online where I'll be like, just promise me if you don't like this book that you'll try again with my next one. And thankfully, I have, you know, enough books now that my readers, if they are of that category that like some of my books and not others, they know that. And so they will try again. They'll say, oh, well, I didn't care for this, but I really loved this, so I will always try. Um, I want to say, uh, just before we finish, first of all, I just yeah. want to say thank you so much for giving over your time to sure. chat today. Um, I, it's just been, it's, I did, again, I don't want to, like, uh, gush, um, but I'm just really, <laughs> really, really grateful, and I feel like I've personally going to go away with a lot of things buzzing around in my brain that will take a little while to process oh, but thank you that. for your hard work thank you for your honesty and I just you know I really really wish you um just those moments of just private having some stories just for you and having that discovery I hope that stays alive for you thank you um but I, and the final thing I wanted to do just to kind of like put a little cap on the whole thing I know it's sort of writing tips and writing advice some authors like talking about some bulk slightly at the terms i was wondering if for our listeners if there's anything um uh, something that you've learned along the way writing an amazing incredible achievement in terms of the, the novels you've written um something that that helps you when you're coming down to that first page uh with the edit kind of with your all your lovely books that are finished um ready for you to compare it to um yeah. something that helps you kind of like get through or a tip that helps you write so this is controversial because i know everyone Great. has a different style of writing and the last thing i want to do ever is offer prescriptive advice i don't believe in prescriptive advice for when it comes to writing what i will say being the kind of person who is constantly at war with their own uh inner critic and constantly fighting the urge to quit writing whatever I'm writing I I start with the ending I know my endings meaning I know exactly where all of the characters end up at the end of my book I know what the last shots are if you will and the reason I do this is so that on good days I have something to write toward I'm very confident in the ending. I don't actually start drafting a book until I feel that confident in the ending, like it's going to be the most satisfying or the right note to hit or whatever it is. So on good days, I'm excited to get to this landing spot that I've already nailed. And on bad, di bad days, it keeps me from quitting because I know the end. I just have to get there. And so what I'll do is I'll say, okay, here's where you are in the book and here's where it ends. What's something that you're excited about writing between here and the end? And then I'll work on that and say, okay, well, what's something between here and there that you're excited about working on? And I'll work on that. And so I found more than anything else across those many books that the one constant, and there are not many constants when you write a lot of different kinds of books, the one constant is that if I feel confident in an ending, and my endings have never changed in all of my books because of it, because I 
I know the ending is one of those things that we wait overly. So it's like the last taste of a meal left in your mouth. Um, it colors the entire experience and for better or for worse. And so I know that if I have an ending that I'm proud of, that the reader is going to be satisfied. And so I use that ending as both my carrot and my stick when I'm writing. That's really nice. So it's kind of like you just make sure that you've like laid yourself. You've got like a really, really lovely meal waiting for you back yeah. at the house when you set off on your journey. Uh, and I've I mean, yeah. I've been I had one book where my draft was like four months late starting it because I could not find the ending that I was excited about. And I could not start writing the book until I found the ending because I just can't work towards an unknown. I have to know. So when I started writing A Darker Shade of Magic, I knew exactly what the last shot was for A Darker Shade of Magic. But I also knew who lived, who died and where they were and where they were going at the end of Conjuring of Light. Wow. There you go. Start with the ending in mind, everyone, or at least try and figure it out so you've got something to move towards. Thank you so much, uh, Victoria. I really, really appreciate your taking the time to chat to me today. Um, and everyone Thank listening, you. I'll put li links to um, uh, to uh, some of those books that we've talked about in the show notes and on my website, timclairpert.co.uk. So you can just click through and uh, check them out for yourselves. I thoroughly recommend it although I, I, I cannot imagine uh, in, in what universe you could have listened to all of this and not be immediately going to um, <laughs> check them out for, for yourselves I don't think it needs any extra um, gloss on, oh, on my part if people want to follow you online or on yes. Twitter where can they where can they do that where can they am, read more about your work or find you I am at V.E. Schwab V-E-S-C-H-W-A-B on both Twitter and Instagram are probably the two best places I do a lot of Instagram stories that are about craft I do a lot of tweeting about craft I also tweet and Instagram a lot about my puppy so double reasons yeah exactly that's a that's what more reason those are the the two key reasons in the world awesome um and everybody else uh thank you for listening and I hope you have a fantastic week of writing <laughs>